The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Well, good morning, Heritage Christian Fellowship. Man, I'm so glad that you're worshiping with us today. Uh, Weird day, right? I'm in my office. I'm actually recording this sermon on a Thursday night. Um, because we're not going to be uh, on campus on Sunday. Today, as is, is we begin our Lord's Day together, there is the majority of the Heritage folks are up at Wilderness Trails Camp. We're having Heritage Camp this weekend. And so the, the very same teaching you're going to receive this morning through this video or through the live stream, I'm be, I'll be preaching live up at uh, Wilderness Trails. But I'm really glad you're worshiping with us. I know there's some folks that are, that are in our hub, our, our smaller office today, because we're having an alternate location for worship, and I'm really, really glad that you're catching us on a series we started last Sunday in the Gospel of Matthew. We're looking at the Lord's Prayer. I encourage you to open up to Matthew chapter 6 in your Bibles, and we're going to be looking at verse nine, verses 9 through 13, really focusing in on verse 10 today. We're calling this series Together, Praying as the Family of God. And, and, and as I mentioned last week, we try on the regular as we're journeying through our year as a church to lean into to areas of discipleship that we have identified as being central to the life of the disciple. And, and two of those areas are authentic worship marked by relationship and authentic uh, and authentic worship marked by love. And so we are using uh, as we think about those discipleship markers, we really see this sermon series as pressing into that. As we are looking at the pattern of prayer that Jesus has given us in the in the Lord's Prayer, and we believe it grows us as disciples to really settle in and look at this model of prayer that Christ has given us. So, let's turn to Matthew 6. I'm going to begin reading in verse, in verse 9, but we're just going to read through this little section of the Lord's Prayer that you're probably quite familiar with. Jesus said, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. If you were with us last Sunday, we we looked at verse 9 and we looked at this, this phrase, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And we learned last, last Sunday that in this pattern of prayer that Jesus has given us, that prayer is communal. We pray together. It begins with this plural language. We, we, we pray our Father in heaven. We learned last week that, that, that in this pattern of prayer that Jesus has given us, that it's intimate. We, we pray to the Father. And the equivalent of the Greek word there is the Aramaic word Abba which is a term of endearment. It's like saying, dearest dad, it's this intimate prayer that we give up to Jesus. And we learned last week that this heavenly prayer, or that this prayer is heavenly, that that we are praying to the reigning king. Not only do we pray to our dearest dad in 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 a duress of intimacy, but he's also our father in heaven. And so he's the reigning king. And so there's this picture of intimacy and reverence as we come to God in prayer. And then the first petition. Of the six petitions in the Lord's Prayer, that first petition is, Hallowed be your name. And so we learned last week, finally, that as as we follow the model of prayer that Jesus gave us to pray, it's it's hallowed. It's it's to pray reverently. It's to pray and recognize that our God is, is preeminent. He is the ultimate. He is the center of all things. 
And so Jesus taught us to pray this prayer, and it's it's filled with plural language, ours, we's, and us's. This is a prayer of a community. That's why we're calling our series together, Praying as the Family of God. Last week, we looked at adoration and praising God together in prayer. This Sunday, we're going to look at this petition of surrender as we lay our wills down, our wills down together in prayer. And then in the coming weeks, we'll look at supplication, what it means for us to lift our prayers together in in uh, uh it, it, together in prayer for God to, to, to pray prayers of supplication. And then in the final week of the series on September 10th, we'll look at intercession, caring for one another together in prayer. Would you, would you pray with me as we prepare to, to sit under the teaching of verse 10 this morning? Well, Father, grateful for the even this technology. God, as I'm recording a sermon a couple days in advance, knowing that you'll use this to bring your word to your people, it's, um, it's just a... It's a miracle of, of technology that you've allowed to happen so that we can uh, we can gather and be at church in many locations on this Sunday and yet sit under the same teaching. We're, we're thankful for that, God. Would you give us ears to hear today and hearts to understand what it is you are revealing to us about prayer, God. I pray that you would grow us and mold us and shape us and teach us as a body of believers to, to, to come to you together and to pray together as the family of God. We love you. We ask that you would be with us this morning as we as we sit under this word and, and seek to worship you. Be glorified in our time together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, one of my favorite uh, things about being a police chaplain is, is the relationship I get to serve, uh, get to develop with cops. I, I am a chaplain here at Medford, and I, and I was in my previous community, and ultimately why I do that is because I, I, I love cops. I, I, I want to support the men and women of law enforcement. I, I believe they need men and women in their corners supporting them and, and walking alongside them, and that's, that's why I do it. That's my joy. I love hopping in squad cars and building relationships and getting to know and developing friendships with cops, and so that, that's, that, that's the primary motivation, but I, I got to say also, it's just really fun, especially doing ride-alongs. I I, it's really, really fun. I, I was on a ride along this last week, and I just noticed as I'm riding along with different cops, I just, I just get a kick out of the way people respond when they see a cop. It's really, you can tell a lot about a person the way, in the way they respond when they see a police officer or they see a squad car. I mean, most people, lots of people, you know, they wave, they smile, they're grateful, they share expressions of gratitude, they smile, give thumbs up, and and then there's another group of people that kind of have an opposite response at times. <laughs> they're not very excited, you know, to see a cop. I had this this instance that happened on uh, on Monday. I was riding along with this sergeant and. We were in Medford, and this guy was in front of us, and he didn't know that we were behind him, and he was kind of parked on the side of the road. And he just flips a U-turn, whatever, and as he's halfway through his U-turn, he has to kind of do a Y-turn, and he looks up, and he sees the squad car and me and this police officer looking directly at him. And he looked at us, and he quickly grabbed his seatbelt, buckled, put his head down, and took off. <laughs> it's just, it made me laugh. And the police officer laughed about, you know, how, how, how people can be sometimes when they see cops. And, but it made me think, you know, it made me think, you know, in very black and white terms, you know, the law is the law. And, and you can either live in a way that conforms to the law, or you can live in a way that doesn't conform to the law. Uh, you can either live in submission to the laws of the land, or you can live in rebellion to the laws of the land. And I think about the, the original audience of the Gospel of Matthew. I think about those the original audience even to the Sermon on the Mount 
within which Jesus gave us this pattern of prayer. I think about those people sitting on that hillside that day listening to Jesus preach, and, and they didn't have the Western mindset of government that we do today. You know, they didn't, they'd never heard the phrase, we the people. They, 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 the idea of, of the people telling the government what to do was a foreign concept. They had a monarchy mindset. The government told the people what to do, and especially in monarchies, the king told the people in his kingdom what to do. And at the time of Jesus, there was a king, King Herod Antipas. But really, as the Roman uh, occupation was all throughout Palestine, they were living under the authority of Caesar. And he was the ultimate. He was the, the most powerful man in the land. And they knew full well what living in a kingdom meant, what living under the authority of a king meant. They had two options, and they knew it. Uh, we can either submit to the authority of the king and, and live in conformity to his rule and reign, or... We can live in rebellion to the king and be insubordinate to his rule and reign. Now, earthly kings and earthly kingdoms rise and fall, but as we think about Jesus talking about the heavenly kingdom and the heavenly king, that's eternal. I mean, if, if they understood submission and rebellion against earthly kings, how much more did the idea of submission to or rebellion against this heavenly king resonate in their hearts as they heard Jesus give this pattern of prayer? And we still have the same option today. As we consider the heavenly king and his heavenly kingdom, we've got two options. We can either live in submission to that king and his kingdom and conform our lives to his rule and reign, or we can live in rebellion to it. Those are really the only two options. And if we pray this prayer that Jesus gave us to pray in Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13, especially Verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If we pray that prayer in, in sincerity with a, with a deep desire for obedience, if we give our, ourselves to this, it, it means we are, we, are, we are agreeing to live in submission to the king and the kingdom of heaven. And so, let's look a little bit more deeply here at, at these two petitions that we're going to study today in this text. And let's, let's remind ourselves of, of the six petitions in the prayer, right? We, we have covered one last week, hallowed be your name. We're going to cover two this week, your kingdom come, your will be done. And in the coming weeks, we'll look at the final three petitions. Now, the first three petitions, as we said last week, these are vertical in nature. The first three petitions contained in the Lord's Prayer are concerned with God's glory. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come God, your will be done. And then these, these second three, or the second half of the Lord's Prayer, the last three petitions are horizontal in nature, not vertical, but horizontal, and they're concerned with human well-being. Give us our daily bread, forgive us our debts, lead us not into temptation, but, but, but deliver us from evil. But all of these petitions, they, as we said last week, they hinge on, on what we covered last week. That, that first petition, the first thing that we are to ask God in prayer is, Hallowed be your name. This is the first and primary petition. And all the preceding petitions hang on this one. To hallow God's name, as we studied last Sunday, is to re recognize that there is none other. To revere Him and to recognize His sacredness. It's to, it's to place Him as the ultimate concern of our lives. It's to put Him at the absolute center of our world. However, as we, as we look around the world, 
we don't see that, right? As, as you and I watch the evening news and drive down Biddle or, or, or drive across countries, we see what's happening in the world around us. We see that, in fact, God's name is not hallowed. It's not, the world around us does not recognize that he is the one true God, that there is no other. They don't recognize him with reverent awe and, and uphold his sacredness. No, no, we see that the God of this world, in fact, is Satan. This is what Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, verse 2. He said that Satan is the prince in the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And so as we look at verse 10, as we come to the second and third petition of the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, we're, we're, we're to pray, God, may, may you be exalted. May you be worshipped as the ultimate sovereign creator, God. May the world bow in reverent awe of who you are. And since you're not currently hallowed, God, may your kingdom come. So that every knee will, in fact, bow. And every tongue will, in fact, confess that you are Lord. So this is the first thing I want you to write down. Is, as we look at the pattern that Jesus gave us, we see of prayer that it's kingdom focused. And we are to pray for his kingdom to come. This is the first thing I want you to write down. It's kingdom focused. And you and I, if we follow the pattern of prayer that Jesus has given us in the Lord's Prayer, we are to pray for his kingdom to come. Now, as we lift up this petition to God, as the people of God, ask God to bring his kingdom in its fullness, we, we, we recognize that, that he is king. Like, he is king. We pray, your kingdom come. And, and when we do that, it's not so much asking that, that something may come true which is not true. To pray your kingdom come is not to say, God, you need to become king. But rather, when we pray your kingdom come, we are saying, as the, as the reigning, sovereign, eternal king of the universe, right now, may your kingdom come in all its fullness. May, may all of creation come under submissive alignment. May, may all of creation conform to your will and to, and to your kingdom. To pray to the God of the universe, your kingdom come. To ask the Father together, may your kingdom come, is to ask God, God, may all of creation awaken to the reality that you alone are king and sovereign over all things. And so as we pray that prayer, we have to consider it in three ways, past, present, and future, right? Your kingdom come, it recognizes the past. There's never been a time when he has not been king. I read this week that God is already king and his kingdom spans the entire universe. Your kingdom come is a call for a new and unique manifestation of his kingdom in the future. It also recognizes the future. Your kingdom come, it looks to the future. That word come is we anticipate a, a future event, a future time when his kingdom will come in its fullness. It's this once and for all event that, that we look forward to as Christians. It's the second coming of Christ when he returns and he judges the world and he sets up his perfect eternal kingdom. When we pray your kingdom come, we're praying in anticipation of that final future kingdom that will, that will exist under the rule and reign of King Jesus. I read this week that in that kingdom, our hearts will be pure. Our lying and deceit, our distrust and shame will be forever banished. Our, our asylums and penitentiaries will be gone and all our words and all of our actions will be done to the glory of God forever and ever. Amen.
I think about it all the time. I mean, the the the, the crazier the world gets, the more I watch the the evening news or the more I read on. The, the, the news websites that I read on and I see the condition of the world today, the more my heart just yearns for this future kingdom of, of God. I, I just yearn for it. I find myself agreeing with John at the end of Revelation, come Lord Jesus. We, we desire deeply as believers, as we live in a broken and fallen world, as we see the depravity that exists in the world around us, we desire deeply for the kingdom of God to come in all its fullness. And so we kind of just have to ask that question. What's it going to be like? The new heavens and the new earth, uh, the eternal state, what's it going to be like? The Apostle John, in the book of Revelation, he was given a revelation of what the new heavens and the new earth will be like, what that future kingdom is going to be like when it comes in all of its fullness. And in that vision, it's interesting that John talks about who and what will be absent in heaven. Do you often think of that? Do you often think of, we often think of what will heaven be like. Do we ever pause and wonder what will be absent in heaven? Well, in the 21st chapter of Revelation, John tells us that, that we see that there'll, there'll be no tears of grief in heaven. No death or sorrow or pain will be present in heaven. We learn that, that we are assured, in fact, that, that there is going to be no one who is cowardly or lying or unbelieving in heaven, there'll be no murderers or anything abominable or immoral or idolatrous. In fact, at the end of the chapter, there's kind of this blanket summary statement where, where we read that nothing unclean will be allowed to enter. So I think about the implications of what's being said here. To quote Jonathan Edwards, that the famous reformer at the center of the Great Awakening, he once said, when we get to heaven, there will be, quote, nothing which shall offend the most delicate eye. Several years ago, I heard a man named Sam Storms, a pastor, author, and theologian, kind of speak on heaven, and, and his, his talk has stuck with me forever. I'm going to borrow some words from Sam Storms as I invite you for the next minute or two to let your imagination consider what heaven will be like, what that kingdom in its fullness will be like for those who belong. We'll see nothing that is abrasive, nothing irritating or agitating or hurtful. We'll see nothing harmful or hateful or upsetting or unkind. There'll be nothing sad or bad or mad, nothing harsh or impatient or ungrateful or unworthy, nothing weak or sick or broken or foolish. There'll be nothing deformed, degenerate, depraved, or disgusting. We can go on. Our eyes will never behold something that is polluted or pathetic or poor or putrid or dark or dismal or dismaying or degrading, nothing blameworthy or blemished or nothing grotesque or grievous or hideous or insidious, nothing illicit, illegal, lascivious or lustful, nothing marred or mutilated or misaligned or misinformed. We'll see nothing nasty or naughty or offensive or odious or rancid or rude or soiled or spoiled or tawdry or tainted or tasteless or tempting, nothing vile or vicious or wasteful or wanton. We'll see none of it. We'll see none of it. So what will we see? When we, when we are in the kingdom, in all of its fullness, this future hope of every believer, what will we see? Well, again, to borrow from Sam Storms, we Wherever our eyes turn, we'll see nothing but glory and grandeur 
and beauty and brightness and purity and perfection and splendor and satisfaction and sweetness and salvation and majesty and marvel and holiness and happiness. And I could go on and on and on. That's all we'll see. We'll see nothing but that which is radiant and resplendent and splendid and sublime and sweet and savoring and tender and tasteful, euphoric and unified. And why? Why will it be all these things? Well, because we'll be looking at God. This gloriously beautiful vision will be utterly transparent. Now, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, we see things as through a glass darkly obscured and blurry, but God will one day unveil himself in all his resplendent brilliance, glory, and clarity for us to behold. This this gloriously blissful vision of God, as Sam Storm says, will be utterly transcendent and will in every conceivable way outstrip and exceed and transcend the glory and beauty and majesty of anything we have ever seen on earth. Hence, there will never be a moment where you and I will grow weary or bored of looking at God. Oh, my heart just yearns for that. Doesn't your heart yearn for that? For that day, I I pray, as I said a few moments ago, in agreement with John at the end of Revelation, come, Lord Jesus. But you know, even as a biblical vision of the new heavens and the new earth give us great hope as we anticipate this coming kingdom, we, or this, the fulfillment of the kingdom, the, the consummation of the kingdom, are we then, between now and then, to just hunker down? To, to maybe build bunkers and bide our time and wait? Is that what we're to do? Wait for the rapture? Wait for the return of Christ? Is, are we just to, to, to hold up? No, no, not at all. Though This, this is not our home, and, and though we are sojourners and exiles here on planet Earth, and, and though our citizenship is in heaven, we are, like the Jewish exiles in Babylon, we are to seek the welfare of the city where God has sent us into exile. We are to pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in the welfare of the city we will find our welfare. That's Jeremiah 29.7. And so I, we got to... We gotta, we got to end with the fact that our, when we pray your kingdom come, it applies to our present. It applies to right now. As he began his ministry, Jesus preached the kingdom. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Of his earthly ministry, Jesus said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God in the other towns. For that is why I was sent. This is my purpose, he said. In speaking of himself, Jesus said, For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And even after his resurrection, as Luke records in the book of Acts, that Jesus presented himself alive after the resurrection. After the suffering and by many proofs, he appeared to them during 40 days speaking about the kingdom of God. Kingdom is mentioned over a hundred times in, in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Preaching the kingdom was ever on the lips of Jesus. So how was it then that Jesus brought the kingdom? How did he bring the kingdom? And how is he bringing the kingdom today? Well, he's bringing the kingdom by bringing people into obedient conformity with his Father's will. And this prayer in the center of the Sermon on the Mount, which is about what it looks like for us to live under the rule and reign of Jesus, this prayer in the center of this great sermon is is the roadmap for, for what it looks like for the people of God 
to live in obedient conformity to the Father's will, that the will of God will be done among the people of God. And if we, if we are going to pray, God, may your kingdom come, we've got to deal with some stuff in our life, don't we? Because I can't pray your kingdom come and hold on to a bunch of other things that are from this kingdom, can I? To quote Alan Redpath, before we can pray thy kingdom come, we must be willing to pray my kingdom go. How is it that his kingdom can come in the present? How can you and I, what are the, what are the, the practical ways that right now you and I can live in a way that brings his kingdom now on earth as it is in heaven? Four things. If you're a note taker, I would encourage you to write these down. Number one is surrender. My life, your life, our life as the people of God needs to surrender and bend to the will of God. And again, there are two options when it comes to the kingship of Jesus. We can either surrender to it or live in rebellion to it. Surrender is the option. That's how we bring his kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. So after surrender, then, then it's commitment. My, my life is to be singularly dedicated to him and his kingdom. Do you remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 9? He said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So that this is to be our, 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 our singular commitment. And then it's priority, right? My, my life's pursuit is to be God and his kingdom. This is to be the priority of my life. Uh, Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And so we bring the kingdom. When we pray, you know, God, may your kingdom come in a practical level. We do our part by surrendering, by, by commitment, by prioritizing, and finally through dependence. My, my life, I have to recognize as, as, a, as a citizen of heaven, my life is utterly reliant on God. I think of how Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or as Kent Hughes says, no one who has the kingdom except those who have come to the end. He says, rather, no one has the kingdom except those who have come to the end of themselves and have turned to God. Now, before I moved here to Medford, as many of you know, I was a pastor in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And the church I pastored was multi-site, and we were mostly in the urban center of the city. And we were in some neighborhoods that were really, really compromised neighborhoods. And when I lived in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, on one hand, it became very disenfranchised, especially with the establishment and with politicians and political solutions. There were so many challenges, and there still are, facing the inner city of Milwaukee. There were long-standing problems that had been around for, for decades and decades and decades. And the government and politicians poured millions, hundreds of millions of dollars into our city looking for solutions job programs and housing assistance and violence prevention training and so on and so forth. But year after year, with all of the politicking and all of the spending, crime seemed to get worse and urban blight seems to spread and school performance continues to plummet and hopelessness seems to increase. And we were planting churches in these same neighborhoods where schools were failing, where crime was rising, where urban blight was infecting and and I'm watching what's happening in these, these little churches that were in these communities that by all accounts were in rough and difficult condition. And 
man, I, as I'm watching the church flourish, these little churches, I see real fruit manifesting in practical ways. As I'm seeing in the present, the kingdom of God come to these neighborhoods. I, I saw believing families learning to be salt and light in dark neighborhoods. And rather than fleeing difficult neighborhoods, they moved and remained and stayed to, to bring the kingdom. I saw believing teachers infiltrate schools and bring Jesus to the lost. I saw believing uh, men and women in their vocation bringing Jesus to their jobs. I saw believing business owners creating economic opportunity in the name of Jesus for other people. I saw hope rising in the city of Milwaukee. I saw men and women from every tribe, tongue, and language group uh, fellowshipping and in unity and in a world obsessed with racial division. I looked at the body of Christ. I looked at the church and I saw beautiful biblical unity and I, and I thought that's the answer. Not some earthly kingdom, not some earthly political party, not some government program that's going to bring dollars. No, we need, we, need the, we need the kingdom of heaven to be brought to earth in the present. What government programs failed to accomplish, I saw the church taking ground. And here's the deal. People always talk, they use a lot of rhetoric. We need to transform our country. I agree. But you know what? Before we can think about transforming the country... we before we can consider transforming the city or even transforming a neighborhood or transforming a block or transforming a family, we, we realize that it's, it's one soul at a time, one heart at a time that the gospel brings transformation to. It is the transformed heart of the individual who brings the, the gospel of transformation to their family, who then brings it to their block and then the neighborhood. And that's how then cities and countries are transformed. So to pray, your kingdom come is to live presently as citizens of his kingdom. It's to bring droplets of this future eternal kingdom, expressions of the kingdom of God to bear through the church in, in, in local ways. It's to, to bring transformation one heart at a time, one life at a time, one family at a time, so that real transformation might happen to those around us. And so our prayers are to be kingdom focused and we are to pray for his kingdom to come. And, and, and quickly, honestly, just quickly, I want to go through this last petition for the day. This, this second part of verse 10, we are, as we look at the pattern of prayer that Jesus gave us, we, we are to pray prayers of surrender. We're to pray for his will to be done. And really that's saying, I want to live in conformity to this. As, as we pray his kingdom come, it means I'm going to surrender to the reign and to the rule, to the authority of my heavenly king. To do the will of God is, well, really, in a way, it's a way of summarizing discipleship. The life of the disciple is, in its most basic terms, it's to do the will of God. I mean, Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. This is discipleship, to do the will of the Father. It's to pray and, and sincerely comply with this prayer for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus said, for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And ultimately, as we, as we think about the ministry and the life of Jesus, he modeled perfectly for us in the Garden of Gethsemane what this looks like. Three times Jesus proclaimed, Father, if it be possible, as he's looking at the reality of the cross, Father, if it be possible that let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will, Jesus said. And so as you and I think about what it means for us to pray, your will be done, it's, it's personal, it's communal within the body of Christ, it's global. 
Personally, as we pray, God, have your way with me, your will be done. It's a scary prayer. But it's recognizing that there's no better place to be than in the center of God's will. And we can, we can, we can comply and, and submit and, and voluntarily give ourselves over to the, the rule and reign of King Jesus. Or we can rebel. And one day he will force every knee to bend and every tongue to confess that Jesus is Lord. And we will, everybody one day will understand the authority that King Jesus deserves. One day you will conform to God's will. So may the prayer of your lips and the expression of your heart be to say, God, I want your will to be done in my life personally, in my, in my thought life and in my relationships and in my vocation and in my finances and my hobby, in the whole of who I am, may your will be done. And we pray for it communally. We want God to have his way with our church as we as individuals and as families and as the family of God submit ourselves unto God and pray to him, God, we want your will to be done in heaven, on earth, and in our church as it is in heaven. We're saying, God, have your way with our church. May we truly be a kingdom outpost here on earth. May we be an embassy of the kingdom in, in this modern day Babylon. May, may our church be a microcosm, a droplet of what that future kingdom will be like for men and women today. And we pray, may your will be done, or we, we ask God's will to be done on earth globally. And that speaks to the future reality that one day Jesus is going to return. And, and, and at that day and at that moment, the, the will of God will be expressed in its fullness as it comes in its final form. When, when, when we see Christ return in power and great glory. And finally, we see that last little qualifier at the end of verse 10 on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. These seven words cap off the, the God word, vertical petitions of the Lord's Prayer. They apply to all three God-directed petitions. This, 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 this last statement, on earth as it is in heaven, is to say, it, it, it's recognizing that in heaven, God's name is hallowed perfectly. In heaven, God's kingship is acknowledged. In heaven, God's will is being done. So as we pray at the end of this first half of the Lord's Prayer, on earth as it is in heaven, we are simply asking God to make the heavenly state of affairs the reality on earth as well. As the name of God is honored and revered in heaven, may it also be honored and revered, hallowed, on earth, as in, as all of heaven bows in reverence before the kingship of Christ, may all the earth exalt the kingship of Christ as well. It's to pray, as all of heaven joyously surrenders to the perfect will of God, may all the earth joyously surrender to the will of God as well. These three vertical petitions of adoration, hallowed be our name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. To pray these first three vertical petitions of the Lord's Prayer is, of course, it requires, if we pray it and mean it, 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 it means that we have to be committed to them. To pray, hallowed be your name, is to be committed in all of our, ourselves. It is to be committed to honor God's name. To pray, your kingdom come, is to willingly accept his kingship. To, to not rebel, but to surrender, to, to conform our lives to it. To, to pray, your will be done, is to surrender the whole of your life to his will. That's why we're calling... Today's sermon, Surrender, 
laying down our wills together in prayer. And so with this new understanding of the Lord's Prayer, may we right now in this moment, I know it may be awkward through the screen, it's okay, whether you're listening at home or you're in the hub or you're listening in a podcast, together may we as the family of God repeat the Lord's Prayer. Say this with me. Pray this with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, as we did last week, we set aside a little bit of time at the end of the service for us as the family of God to gather and pray. This is the house of prayer. We need to be able to pray together. And man, listen, I, I get it. I know it, it may be awkward, the thought of praying in, in little huddle groups around the sanctuary or, or uh, in your living room as you watch the stream. It may, it may feel a bit awkward, but I, I man, Jeremy, Pastor Jeremy and I laughed about this. And I thought, man, I know people might be awkward by this, but, but I can imagine, I just imagine in my mind someone leaving the church because it was too awkward to pray to, together on a Sunday morning with other people. And someone asks them, the, the next week, hey, why did you leave church? Oh, because they wanted me to pray with someone. It's like, this. we, we are the family of God. We, we need to learn to pray together. And I, and I get it may be a little awkward, but I will encourage you today to take the next few minutes. We are inviting you to pray in groups of two or three or four, or pray as a family, pray in isolation. If you feel like this is something you want to pray privately with God, that's fine as well. I'm encouraging you to join in. And we're going to pray through the pattern of the prayer. We're going to pray prayers of adoration. Today we're going, to, we're going to focus on the prayers of surrender as we lay down our wills together in prayer. We're going to pray prayers of supplication and intercession. So right now, church, gather together. We're going to have some music. We're going to let you know when it's time to, to, to move on to a new topic of prayer. But let's offer to God our adoration. Let's spend the next two minutes offering praise to God for His character and nature as our Father. And let's do so without asking for anything. Let's pray together, church.